0: Well, with that, our passage this morning, it's Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34. Let me read um, our passage for us, and then uh, let's pray and see what God has for us. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sights and followed him. Let's pray. God, the Psalms say that your word is what created the heavens and that by the breath of your mouth, the stars were set in place. That, God, when you speak, it is, it is upright, and all of the work you do with your word is done in faithfulness and steadfast love. And so I pray now, as we open your word, would you give us eyes to see and ears that hear your heart, uh, your steadfast love for us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is there a worse feeling in the world than regret? As far as I'm, I'm concerned, regret is, is underrated as far as terrible emotions go. That I easily get caught up in anxiety, fear of failure, worry, but I need to be paying a lot more closer attention to regret. That feeling you have when you've made a mistake that you cannot undo, It's, it's the worst feeling. Now, I'm at a point in ministry now where I've done quite a few weddings in my life, and they've always terrified me. Doing weddings terrifies me because... I'm, I'm more of a laid-back personality, and weddings require me very f- to be very formal and very prim and proper. And so early in my ministry, I was in a rural church in Indiana, so most of the weddings I did, they were kind of like redneck weddings. Flannel was involved. It was, it was very easy and normal. Um, but, but the more I, I got along in ministry, the more formal weddings I have done. And so one of the earliest weddings I did was, was from a family that was very proper, very very uh, um, um, delicate in the way they approached things. They rented out one of the nicest Um, Settings, nicest wedding venues in all of Indianapolis where I was living at the time. I knew their expectations were high, and they asked me to do the wedding, so I just went in. I went in terrified because I knew more so than usual I was going to have to look and play the part of a very proper pastor, which I just don't look or play that part very well. And so the the ceremony happened. It was going well. Um, My jokes had landed. The, the women were tearing up. Uh, the men were tolerating everything that was going on because I promised them a short ceremony. There was an open bar coming uh, very soon. And so it was going well, and, and very rarely this will this happen anytime I'm preaching or, or doing something in front of other people. But I actually had a moment in the ceremony where my inner monologue just paused and just thought, I, I'm doing a great job. <laughs> like, I'm owning this wedding. This is going really well. And I have that thought, we're going through the wedding, and it's, it, I think it's going well. It's going well. And I get to the last paragraph where I'm about to pronounce these two people, husband and wife. And I get to that paragraph, and I start reading it. Now that Jamie and Julie have given themselves to each other by solemn vows and have shown their affection by the giving and the exchanging of rings. And at that point, I realize, I don't think we've exchanged any rings in the ceremony. And I look at the best man who had the ring in his, in his pocket, and his look on his face answered my, my question for me. No, Tim, we have not exchanged any rings during the ceremony. And so I just, I just paused in the middle of the pronunciation of man and wife just to say, maybe, maybe we ought to exchange rings first. Um, and so we did it. I made fun of myself, but it was, it was horrifying. I close the ceremony. I leave. I go to the table full of people with my church, and they do not encourage me they do not warm my heart they just relentlessly made fun of me during the entire reception that's how that wedding went right but don't worry I'd love to do your wedding right it terrifies me to to do weddings and there are regrets like that 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 you can laugh at right you look back it's horrifying it's it's but it's funny but then there's then there's regret gut-wrenching regret I have one of those stories also It was the summer after my freshman year in college, and I had begun spending a lot of time with a friend of mine from high school, and and she was great she was a lot of fun i spent most of my time not working with her she spent most of her time not working with me but it was kind of one of those weird relationships that that teenagers often get themselves in it was it was kind of like we were dating but we weren't but we were but we weren't it was just it was weird and so right before we went back off to college she sort of had this moment where she just asked me like what kind of what are we doing here what's the future what's the plan you're getting ready to go off to school what are we what's what's going on and and just as a younger guy just Feeling like I never had to make a decision, and then I was like, "Well, we're friends. It's you know, no big deal. Let's just let's just be friends." That sort of, and that's what we did. And so I went off to college, and she stayed um, in our home town, and and we sort of didn't speak to each other after that. And it wasn't soon after that moment that I had like the real gut wrenching, painful regret that I had known I would made the wrong decision. And so I I reached back to her. She was dating another guy, and. And there was just this pain, like I couldn't even be around her because I regretted that decision, that I would have given anything to have someone go into that moment and interrupt myself, stop myself, and say, don't do this, Tim, you're about to make a huge mistake. The regret is a horrible feeling. And what Matthew is trying to do in these six short verses, I think, is, is draw out that feeling from us. That Matthew means these six verses that we read to be a warning to us sort of a whisper to our ears or a slap in our face, that a reminder that there's, there's one choice in our life that's more important than any other choice that we will make. There's one thing in your life more than anything else that if you miss this, you will regret it. So what does Matthew want us to not miss? What does he want us to make sure that we get? Well, let's look at, at these six verses under what Matthew 1 doesn't want us to miss, and then th- two, three, three warnings he gives us so that we won't miss it. That what you cannot miss in three warnings. So in verse 29, we're told that Jesus, his disciples, and a great crowd are leaving Jericho. They're going out of the city of Jericho, which if you, would, if you read that sentence in light of the rest of the gospel of Matthew and, and in light of some of the things that were going on in that day, two things would have immediately jumped out at you. The one, Jericho, it's an important city. It's an important city in the the Old Testament. It's one of the cities where God intervened sort of last minute to save his people miraculously to help them enter into the promised land. So it was a city with rich history. But more importantly, for our, our story's sake, Jericho was the last exit. It was the last city, the last stop before you got to Jerusalem, before you got to the main, the most important city in the day it's sort of like every time I come home uh, to Kansas City from visiting my family in Indiana, and we're on I-35 going south, into downtown into Kansas City, and there's always this moment about in Liberty where you kind of come to the top of this hill, and there's a valley, and, and it goes up to the hill of downtown Kansas City. And you can see for miles, and you see worlds of fun, the roller coasters, the downtown, and there's just this moment of, I'm almost there. Right? It's like, oh, just a few more exits will be, we'll be at our house. Right? And when you travel with three kids, that feeling of almost, being almost there, it's far more rewarding than, than any other moment. But that's, that's sort of what Jericho was. When you got there, it was the almost there to the city of Jerusalem. And so the other thing that should jump out at you is, is if you've been reading, you've been paying attention to Matthew's gospel, is Matthew, or Jesus has repeatedly said now in the last few chapters, three times, he's told his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to die. And so the idea that they're at the last city before Jerusalem is that they're at the last city before Jesus will be taken and killed. The time is running out for Jesus, and Jericho is marking how close we are to the end. But the disciples, the crowds, they simply had not understood what Jesus meant when he directly said, i'm going to die when we go to Jerusalem." And so Jesus, in this moment of this story, he 's popular. The crowds loved him, they have surrounded with him, surrounded him, and they 're going with him from Jericho to Jerusalem to celebrate, much like a parade. They, they think Jesus is going in to Jerusalem with fanfare and with excitement and with celebration and with people welcoming him into the city. They think it's going to get better. From here, and so that's why it's not just Jesus and a few disciples going to Jericho. It's like a it's like a parade of people singing and chanting, and with Jesus going to Jerusalem. And Matthew, in the middle of this moment, with everyone excited, they're on their way out of Jericho. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're almost out of the city as as, as this is going on. Matthew just stops us in the story and says, "Look over there." And what's what's over there? What he wants us to look at is to look at two blind men who are sitting. Who were beggars by the side of the road? Which would not necessarily have been a notable sight. This is where beggars would have sat, is on the way in and out of a city. The road, um, sort of at the, at the exit, that's where you would have gotten the most travelers coming in and out of the city. And these beggars would have been especially smart because they were on the road that led to Jerusalem, where all the religious people went to worship. God, and so you can just imagine them sitting there, sort of adding a little guilt trip, like, you're worshiping God, well, I can't because I'm blind, I'm stuck here, you should maybe give me something, right? They're, they're, they're in easy pickings land, and so they're, they're begging from religious people as they're on their way to Jerusalem, when they cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. To which the crowd gets angry and rebukes them, tells them to be quiet, be silent, don't, you can't, don't speak to Jesus. You're beggars. Be quiet. And before we rebuke the crowd, I, I think the best way to understand what's going on in this moment is to think back to the Royals World Series parade um, uh, over a year ago. And and just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, it's a parade. There's people driving um, in to celebrate. And, and just imagine a homeless guy, like, running in front of Eric Hosmer's car and demanding money, just saying, I... Give me money now. We would have, have rebuke that guy. We'd say, what are you doing? Get out! This, is, this isn't a time for that. This is a parade. This is a celebration. Why are you begging? Get, just get out of the way. And that's sort of what's going on here is the people have gathered to celebrate, and these two blind men have interrupted and have stopped the procession. But the, the, the blind guys ignore the crowds, and they cry out a second time, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So Jesus stops, he looks at the two blind men and he asks them a question, a question he asks often to people who have approached him in the gospel of Matthew. He asks, "What do you want me to do for you?" "What do you want from me?" And they tell him, "Lord, we we want our eyes to be opened." They make that request, and Jesus doesn't say anything. And no doubt they're, they're wondering, how did Jesus respond to this? They can't see his facial expression. No doubt they hear the crowd murmuring, complaining about this interruption on their trip to Jerusalem. And the next thing they know, someone is, is touching their eyes. And then they see Jesus touching their eyes. He, he heals them. Jesus, the son of David. And these two blind men who began the day as beggars on the side of the road in the day following Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And reading this story raises the question, why is it here? What's going on here? Because if you read all of Matthew 20 and all of of Matthew 21, the story doesn't seem to fit quite here. Then in Matthew 20, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And so you sort of assume, all right, we're going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. In Matthew 21, you have Jesus in Jerusalem is the last week of his life beginning. But before you get there, you have this moment of Jesus almost out of this last city, almost gone when these two blind men call out to him just in the nick of time, and Jesus goes and heals them. So why, why interrupt the flow? Why interrupt the story? Why is this here? And the moment we start asking the question, Matthew has us. That we start to look at the details of the story, and we can begin to put them together. The Jericho, it's the last stop before Jerusalem. It's the last chance to get to Jesus before the authorities get to him, to kill him. That There's two guys here who stop at nothing to get to Jesus, despite everything that's against them. There's bad timing, right? Jesus, he's, he's gone. He's leaving. He's not waiting. He's done with Jericho, and yet they call out to him. If they have bad manners, the crowd knows they don't have any right to call out to Jesus, but these guys have no idea. They don't bother with, with proper social customs. They call out, they demand an audience with Jesus. But even more significant than that is this is the last time two things will happen in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the last time Jesus is going to heal someone, the last time he's going to perform a healing, and it's the last time someone is going to follow Jesus. Which is what Matthew's Gospel really is all about. It's about you and I following Jesus. Jesus And Jesus is about to go to the most religious city in the world. He's about to go to to spend the last week of his life where everyone else has gone to meet with God, to know God, to worship God, and no one will follow him there. It's almost like Matthew says to us as Jesus is walking out of Jericho on the way to Jerusalem, listen, it's time to make your decision. It's time to decide. It's time for you to make up your mind about who you think Jesus is. Either call out to him for mercy or let him pass you by. Matthew is saying to us, do not miss this king. Do not let him walk past you without crying out for mercy. So, what you cannot miss is, is this king? Is Jesus? But here's the thing lots of people in, God, in the Matthew, Gospel of Matthew miss him. Most of the religious people miss him, most of the religious leaders miss him. Then, in Matthew 19, just a couple chapters ago, we read about someone who was moral, who kept the commandments, who was a good person who came to Jesus and asked, what do I have to do for eternal life? And he couldn't go. He couldn't do it. He couldn't follow Jesus. And so embedded in this text then, both in these six verses, but really all through Matthew 1 through 20, is is warnings to you and I to not miss Jesus. And things that people typically did in his day and continue to do to this day that cause us to miss him, to let him pass us by without crying out, for mercy. And so three warnings I want to push into um, this morning. The first, don't let anyone stop you from getting to Jesus. All right, and there are two types of people who will who will try to prevent you from getting to Jesus. There's religious crowd, the religious crowd, which is here, trying to prevent these blind guys from getting to Jesus, and then there's the, the irreligious crowd. If the religious crowd is here, they're rebuking these blind men for calling out to Jesus, essentially saying, You're not worthy. You haven't earned this. You're not the right social class. You don't, you don't deserve the attention of Jesus, which the blind men completely ignore this rebuke because the, not because they think less of Jesus, but because actually I would say they think more of him than even the religious crowd who's following him thinks. That they refer to Jesus as the son of David, these two blind men, which if, if you can think all the way back to Matthew 1, that's a very important title in the gospel of Matthew. Son of David isn't just saying, oh, you're a descendant of David. It's more significant than that. That if you if you go to the first the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, if you've ever tried to read it, it's it's a list of very long, boring, unreadable names. That maybe you've, you've been tried to like, I'm gonna read the New Testament, and you open to Matthew 1, and it's like, what is going on? Like, why are who are these people? Why are they here? Well, Matthew, Matthew put them there to make one point. And that was to say that, that Jesus is a descendant of David, who was king of, of Israel. And and therefore, when you say Jesus, son of David, what you're really saying is is King Jesus. It's a kingly title to say son of David. These these two blind men understand they're calling out to a king, they're demanding an audience with the king. And Jesus granted it to them. He listened. He stopped. And so let me just pause for a minute and speak to, to just those of us in this room who are Christians, who follow Jesus. That I think one of this, the implications of this text is that the church should be the most welcoming place in the world. Christians should be the most welcoming people in the world. That either when someone walks into this place, um, or when someone walks into your life, we should be the most outward-focused people, because that's what Jesus is like. There's no one too low or too annoying or too late to talk to Jesus. The same should be true of us. And yet the church isn't always like that. We're often like the religious crowd. We may not say Get away, but our body language speaks that that language. And so, in college, when I was I was in a church planning class, and we were doing research on a community, so I had to go. I had to go to four church services on one Sunday morning one time, which is actually even worse than it sounds. Um, I had to go to four, and the first one I went to um, was eight a.m. service, and yeah, you know, so it was mostly older folks. It was probably they probably wondered who I was when I walked in because I was clearly the youngest person in there. I was the only one who had missed shaving um, in quite some time. And I clearly didn't fit. And it was just interesting, kind of sitting in there. And the service ended, I was, you know, as an introvert, just trying to like book it for the exit. And and this woman just kind of she got to me first, she cornered me, and she's like, You look like you need to eat some food. So I was like, I don't even I don't know what this means, but you're right. Um, I do need to eat some food. And so they, they had a potluck breakfast, and and she invited me down to eat this breakfast, and I ate it with her and her friends, and we just talked about the church, and and it was so it was so warming, so encouraging. It was one of those encouraging conversations um, that I've just ever been a part of, the most welcome I've ever felt in a in a church, even though. Um, I was supposed to leave to go pick up my friend. He was another church. He had to wait for me like 20 minutes. And he, he didn't accept my apology when I told him I ate this giant cinnamon roll. For some reason, that didn't make him feel better. But uh, so I was waiting on a friend. I'm an introvert. This is not the sort of thing I would like. And yet their welcoming spirit, it gave the gospel credibility to me. But I went to three more churches that day, and I didn't have that experience. It was easy to walk in and walk out. It was easy to have awkward interaction or to not. I feel like I was intruding into the, the space. Christians, we teach that God became man, that the king of the universe became man, and that when he became man, anyone could get an audience with him. Anyone could, he could, anyone could speak to him. Anyone could approach him and go up to him. And I would just ask, do you as a Christian, do you give credibility to that with the way that you live your life? Do we as a church give credibility to that truth with, with, with the way that we run church? Then may we not be like the religious crowd, subtly telling people, don't speak to Jesus right? You, you're beggars. Stay over there. This is, we, we have important business to do. We're on the way to Jerusalem. Let's, let's not be like that. Let's live in to our Savior, our King, who, who anybody could get an audience with. And so don't let religious people tell you you can't get to Jesus. Don't let them stop you, but don't let irreligious people stop you. That the reality is that the, the other type of crowd that, that might keep you from Jesus is, is that for some of us, to let people we work with know um, our faith, it would be costly to us. What would our coworkers say if we, if we shared our faith? What would our classmates say if we shared our faith? Our professors, our friends, our neighbors? That perhaps one of the reasons why our, our, our faith, our walk with Jesus can't deepen is because we're unwilling to go public with it. We're unwilling to shout for mercy in the streets. So don't let anyone keep you from Jesus. Not religious people who tell you you're not worthy and not irreligious people who want to keep you from him. So that's, that's warning one. Warning two is don't let you stop you from Jesus. And that, what I mean by that is there's this question that Jesus asks here, which he asks almost anyone that approaches him. He asks, what do you want from me? Which seems like a very direct question, almost like a condescending or a, 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 a hurtful question, right? He's asking these two blind guys, hey, hey, what do you want me to do for you? Like, well, Jesus, I'm, I'm blind, Take a hint. Like, maybe I want to see, right? It seems like a condescending question, but it's not. And when Jesus is asking this question, what what he's saying is, do you just want me to heal you, or do you want me? Do Do you want me to solve your problems in life, or do you want me to solve you? Do you want me, or do you want what you can get from me? What do you want from me? And the answer the blind men gave, it seems like they're just saying, well, let us see. But they're actually saying much more than that when they say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Because in the, in the Bible, blindness, blindness is not often not just physical blindness, like I can't see, I'm blind. It's often, it's often a metaphor for spiritual Blindness that we human beings in the, in the Bible were described that we, we can't see God, we can't see him around us, that we're blind to much of what his kingdom is doing in the world. And so commentators in this passage rec- of this passage recognize that when these two guys ask to speak or ask to see, they're asking for more than just physical sight. They're asking for spiritual sight. They're asking for complete healing from Jesus. And one way we know this is true is that when they do get healed, when they're no longer blind, they don't just go and return home. They don't just say, thanks, Jesus, See you later. They, they actually, they get on the road with Jesus and go to Jerusalem with him. They didn't just want to see. They wanted their eyes to be opened. And so I think we need to press into this question. That there are things in us that we want more than Jesus that keep us from him. That even, even when we approach Jesus, we're just approaching him because we want something from him, not because we want him. And so it's worth asking, what, what do you want more than following this king? Do you want healing in, in one part of your life? Maybe financial problems. But you don't want him to deal with your pride problem. Do you want him to give you eyes to see you as you really, truly are? Or do you just want an easier life, a blessed life from him and then be on your way? But what do you really want from Jesus? It's a question he's going to ask over and over and over Again, and there's so many things in our own heart that can get between us and Him, and so don't let don't let you stop you from getting to Jesus. Don't want anything more than Him. Don't let anyone stop you from getting to Jesus, and finally, don't let tomorrow stop you from getting to Jesus. Then, when it comes to regret, if there's one common thread in any story of regret, it's that is that thought: I'll, "I'll do it tomorrow. I'll apologize tomorrow. I'll, I'll say I love you tomorrow. I'll call tomorrow. I'll think about that more tomorrow. I'll get serious about that tomorrow." But the blind men don't do that. They follow Jesus immediately. And you see this. This is a theme. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, people follow Jesus immediately. They leave everything and they follow Jesus immediately. And so when it comes to to you dealing with Jesus, don't put this off till tomorrow. Today is all we have. Tomorrow is no guarantee. You have to make up your mind. Settle in with the fact that either Jesus is a fraud, a liar, he duped a lot of people who lived around him and who knew him. Or he's he was telling the truth, and follow him. And it doesn't have to be perfect. You may not know what you're doing every step of the way, but that's not the point. Decide now. Don't put it off. Follow Jesus today. There is no tomorrow. Because there, there actually will come a day when there is no tomorrow. I mean, we, in our very blessed culture, I think it's easy to think, well, I'll get to that later, but, but you can't. There will, there will come a day when there is no tomorrow. So let me tie up uh, the potentially awkward story that, that I started with. Now, what, makes, what makes regret so br- brutal is that, that in that conversation with that girl on her front porch, I assumed I had plenty of time to make the, like, I don't have to, this is, why are we rushing things? Until I, I had no time, and there was no tomorrow. And through a, a very strange set of circumstances, one might be tempted to, to call the grace and or providence of, of God I reconnected with that girl a few years later, and you can bet that the next time, I didn't live like there was a tomorrow. I was very was very aggressive. I was very bold. I didn't hold anything back. I was very I was very front and center, right? There was no tomorrow. This is the no regrets. I lived in that for a long time, and just so you're not wondering, like, are you talking about someone you're not married to? I'm not. I'm talking about my wife, Misty, who I've been married to for eight years, and that that's our story, is that, that there was a lot of regret, and then when I had a second chance, i I didn't act like I had a second chance. I went in, and that's how, listen, you have got to approach Jesus like that. Demand an audience with him. Follow him. Do not wait for tomorrow. And I would say, maybe, maybe you don't believe in Jesus, or maybe you have a hard time believing in God. And I would just say, one of the things I love about this passage is that these are two blind guys who have never seen Jesus and have, cannot have the, their miracles um, of Jesus made credible by anything other than witness, word, of mouth, the same way you and I have had the, the miracles of Jesus made credible to us. They've never seen him. They don't know him. They just, they just cry out. And Jesus call, He shows up. He gives them an audience. And so if you don't believe, demand an audience with Jesus. Call out to him. Ask for mercy. He will answer. Or maybe you're, you're sitting there thinking, Tim, I need encouragement to follow Jesus, to stay after him, because following is, is hard, right? You're, you're leaving Jericho to go to Jerusalem, where Jesus will be crucified. This isn't, this isn't the road to something easy. How do we know if we cry out to Jesus? He'll give us mercy again and again and again. His mercies will be new each morning, because he's the only king who will stop for you. My guess is that the president was leaving town in Kansas City and you yelled at him at the airport and went running up to him, he would not give you an audience. And yet the the king of the universe who made the heavens, put the stars in place, makes it rain, makes it lightning, sends storms, that God stopped for two beggars to listen. He's the king of limitless power who took on flesh to dwell among us, to have hands so that he could reach out and touch eyes and make them see. He's the God of the universe who became flesh to enter and and minister in the city of Jericho and then to get out onto the road and head to Jerusalem to die for you and to die for me. That Do not miss this king. Let's follow him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you became flesh to dwell among us. That you... God, when we call out to you for mercy, you stop to listen. That you can heal anything wrong with us, that you can make anything wrong with us right. And God, even in the midst of suffering and sorrow, God, when things aren't getting healed or getting fixed, God, we have, can have a sense of hopefulness that even when you don't heal, God, you still go to Jerusalem to die for us. You will make us whole. You will make us right. And so we rest in that faith now. And God, I ask even as we, we now sit and watch um, Baptisms from a couple of weeks ago, as people placed their profession, their faith of Christ in a public way. God, will we watch each of those baptisms as a reminder of the story of the gospel, that we're buried with you in your death and raised, new life in your resurrection. God, that is our, that is our hope, that is our story. May we, not, may we not miss it and may we follow you, Jesus. We pray. Amen.